future of health with Providence St. Joseph Health. I'm Mary Renoff, your guest host today, and I'm bringing you the latest in healthcare trends and news each week. Today we're joined by Dr. Ronan Cahill, a sports medicine physician with Swedish Sports Medicine, and we'll be talking about regenerative medicine. Remember everyone, if you have questions for our expert, please feel free to submit them via Twitter or Facebook while we're live here today. We can be found on Twitter at PSJH and on Facebook under Providence St. Joseph Health. You can use the hashtag Future of Health and we'll be on the lookout throughout the show. Before we start, I want to do one quick thing for our listeners and to remind you that the information provided during this podcast is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. So let's get started by welcoming Dr. Cahill to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Wonderful. Let's get started with an easy one. Can you tell us a little bit about your role at Swedish? Yeah. Um, so I am a sports medicine physician here at Swedish. So I do outpatient sports medicine. And what that really means is that I see patients with musculoskeletal or orthopedic complaints that don't necessarily need surgery and um, try and figure out what's the best way to get their either injury healed or to get them back to their activities in a timely fashion, whether that's with um, you know, a combination of imaging and diagnostics or physical therapy or our topic today through regenerative medicine. Wonderful. Okay. For those of you who are listening to the show and may not know, Swedish is actually part of the Providence St. Joseph Health family and really based in the state of Washington, which is where we are today. So tell me, what drew you to sports medicine? My route to sports medicine was a little bit long and circuitous. I was initially interested in orthopedic surgery, had had a lot of experience with orthopedists over time as an athlete myself with the, you know, the regular injuries and um, aches and bad luck that happens um, playing sports um, and was really fascinated by the way that the human body worked and um, thought that the surgeries were really interesting. However, in, during medical school, I kind of really started to like all aspects of medicine and, didn't, and found that I actually didn't like spending that much time in the operating room, which if you're going to be a surgeon, you should probably right. like to spend mm -hmm. a lot of time there. And so went into family medicine instead. And um, that was what brought me here to Seattle. And here I had the good fortune to uh, train with a couple fantastic physicians who are both family doctors and sports medicine doctors okay. and kind of got exposed to the field of sports medicine and really liked the way that you can bring some of the family medicine approach of taking the patient as a whole and kind of all the psychosocial and, um, and the other factors of health into getting people back to their activities and uh, decided that that was really what I wanted to do and it married my kind of love of sports and the love of the body and getting people back to activity and did it in a way that was um, um, kind of just kind of meshed with everything that I wanted to do. Oh, that's wonderful. What are the most typical types of treatments or services that you provide? That is a great question. Um, there, so I'd say what I do an awful lot of is a lot of, um, so finesse diagnosis, so Somebody may see their primary care provider and they're like, oh, you've got knee pain, but we're not quite sure. Is it an MCL injury? Is it an ACL injury? Is it a meniscal injury? Um, go see the sports doctor and you know, get a more of a finesse diagnosis. I also do an awful lot of diagnostic musculoskeletal ultrasound. Mm -hmm. So that is a great technique where we use ultrasound, which is the same technology used for imaging babies and 
um, looking at the heart, but we use it to look at the muscles, the tendons, uh, the nerves, and actually can see a little bit into the joints, and we use that for real-time diagnosis and education during the clinic visit. And, and then do, I do an awful lot of injection-based therapies as well. So that would be um, you know, steroid-based injections, um, sometimes just diagnostic injections, trying, you know, a lot of times somebody will have some pain and it will be hard to really distinguish between two different etiologies, mm -hmm. um, two different causes of the pain. Mm -hmm. And so the, the diagnostic injection really allows us to say with a little bit more certainty, yes, it's diagnosis A versus diagnosis B. Um, and then another procedure that we do is, um, you know, PRP, which is in the field of regenerative medicine, which we're going to get to in a little bit. Oh, very exciting. Well, actually, let's go right into it. What is regenerative medicine? Yeah, so regenerative medicine is a very broad concept of using different, um, so different um, products, different body products to um, heal injuries. So that's a really awkward way of saying that using kind of your own blood or your own cells or your own tissues to, um, to control pain, to uh, recover from ligament injuries or from kind of arthritic pain. But it's your own body's cells. Correct. Like, so, you're, so for example, the most common um, type of regenerative medicine would probably be uh, platelet-rich plasma, otherwise known as PRP. And in that um, procedure, what we're doing is we're taking your own blood. You take a blood draw just like you get a blood draw in the lab. And um, we take it out, and then we spin it down in a centrifuge and separate the, pla uh, the platelets and plasma, and then we recombine them, and then we inject them back into the body. The reason for doing this is that the platelets are the healing cells of the body. So anytime you get injured, you get um, a... Deliver your body just delivers the platelets to an area, and if you've got a cut in your skin, it's the platelets that cause it to clot. If you've got an injury kind of under the skin, the platelets are there and they get activated, mm -hmm. and then they start this entire cascade that leads to um, some inflammation, which is just the body's normal response to injury, but through that, there's also then healing that happens. And so we're trying to harness that same process to heal a, an acute injury or a chronic injury or a degenerative injury. And um, so that, that's really kind of what PRP and regenerative medicine is all about. So is it taking the way that your body naturally heals itself and speeding it up, or is it completely different, that not something that the body would typically do? A little bit of both. It's a little bit of both. So, um, so, one, so one great example would be if you have an acute muscle tear. There's a lot of bleeding that happens in a muscle tear. That's part of the reason why if you say you tear your quadriceps or you tear your calf, you'll have a lot of bruising and there'll be a lot of swelling. It's because bleeding is happening. A lot of times we don't need to use regenerative medicine, regenerative medicine in those cases because you've got a lot of the platelets and these um, healing products there already. So how... So we don't really use it so much for muscle injuries. There are cases where it gets used, but it's not the most common. On the other hand, say you have a, um, an acute ligament tear. So um, a couple common examples would be um, 
the MCL or the medial collateral ligament in the knee, mm -hmm. or say um, a couple stabilizing ligaments in the elbow. And ligaments don't have the same robust blood supply that muscles have. And for this reason, the healing response is not quite as strong, and you often end up with more of a chronic injury or a non-healing injury. Mm -hmm. So in those cases, um, PRP can be quite helpful in that acute injury to try and get you to the point where it heals without needing um, surgery or long-term bracing or something to that degree. Oh, interesting. We also use it a lot in chronic injury, um, which is kind of a different ball game. So, you know, in chronic injury, you had an injury, and for whatever reason, either healing didn't happen the way it was supposed to happen, or, you know, the healing process stopped, and you've left with, um, you know, pain. Um, this is com common in the shoulder, um, and that's probably... Uh, the shoulder is a really common area for that, and the elbow, so the lateral elbow would be another place where that's really common. And so in that case, what we're trying to actually do is restart the entire healing process. And then, so there we're using PRP, we're restarting the inflammation process, and then, at least in our clinic, and generally speaking, what happens is that you then go through a guided rehabil rehabilitation protocol after that. Okay. Are you guys seeing a lot more injuries due to the CrossFit craze? I don't know if I'd say there's a lot more injuries. I think when CrossFit first came out, there was an increase in the number of people that were actually having um, rhabdomyolysis, where you actually, it's kind of like you've worked your muscles too much, uh -huh. and that was um, not uncommon at that time. But, you know, I see some people with CrossFit injuries, but I see a lot of people that are not involved with CrossFit who are having lots of injuries too. Okay, makes perfect sense. Um, why do you think people are drawn to this new approach to healing and recovering? I think there's a lot of reasons that um, people are people and and providers as well are drawn to the idea of regenerative medicine. It's really nice to be able to use a treatment that has very low risk of an adverse reaction. Right? You're using your own body's products. You can't really reject yourself. Um, so the risk of re um, adverse reaction is really low. The other idea, or the other reason that people like, the, like it is because it's kind of more of a natural way of healing. Um, it, you're taking a process that the body already does, and you're just trying to restart it, and you're trying to focus it in in a very specific area. So it's, it is a little bit more natural. And then I think another reason why people are turning to it is that what we're finding over time is that while surgery is a really great option for some problems, it's not a cure-all. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people that we see who have had surgeries but still have pain afterwards, right? So, you know, if, some, if I were to, you know, break a bone and need it fixed right away, of course I'm going to have surgery. But if I have had more of a chronic injury, where there wasn't necessarily an acute injury or something's happened over time, you know, jumping right into a surgery may not be the best option. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the recovery process when we come back from a quick break. We will be right back. Am I the only one who's been mistaken? Cause you're the only one who keeps me waiting. Do you know how much time I would be saving if I didn't let you into my head? Showing in my head Oh no, I've done it again Haven't I been here 
Host, and we're here today with Dr. Cahill. I'm talking about sports medicine and regenerative medicine. So right before the break, we were talking a little bit about recovery and surgery. Um, let's talk a little bit about how long it takes to be quote unquote pain free when you're talking about regenerative medicine. That is an excellent question. It is a little bit variable person to person and uh, depends a little bit on what body part or joint we're uh, treating at the time. One of the you know, the principle behind PRP is that we are going to be using the body's own healing process, which takes a little bit of time. So typically, uh, I counsel patients that you may actually have a little bit of increased pain in the first uh, couple of days to a week after an injection. Um, but by about one to two weeks, you should be back at your baseline. And then it's really in the weeks four to six that you're starting to see some incremental benefits. But it's not until six weeks that people are really starting to feel much better. And then you get to, you have continued benefit up to about three months or so. So it's a little bit of a longer time course than, say, getting a steroid injection where people feel better like, almost right away. But in this case, what we're trying to do is really harnessing the power of the body to heal it itself. So you have to wait for that process to happen. Would you talk about a steroid injection? Is that like a cortisone? Is that what people would know it as? That's what people would know it okay. as. I get asked this a lot. I have no, I've never seen cortisone itself. Nope. I think that's the, uh, <laughs> one of the original ones and everything we use is really a derivative of that. Okay, okay interesting. Are there, um, obviously regenerative medicine is something that is becoming more popular and we're hearing a lot about it. And you talk about PRP, which we hear out there and we hear stem cell. What, what kind of are the differences? What are the key areas? What are the things that people really should start paying attention to if they're looking at this as an alternative option? That is a great question. You're right, I've mostly been talking about PRP as a um, form of regenerative medicine. And part, partly that's because that's the most common. Um, it is the most widely used type of regenerative medicine. And it's also um, tends to be the least costly type of regenerative medicine as well. Um, Bone marrow derived injection, so that would be, or sorry, let me take a step back. So 
so stem cells injections is the kind of the next step up in regenerative medicine techniques. And there's two ways that you can get those stem cells. Bone marrow derived aspirate. Um, so what happens there is you actually have to take a biopsy from the iliac crest in the same way that um, has been done for years and years and years in the field of oncology and hematology. That's in the spine? Uh, it's actually, it's part of your hip. Oh, okay. Um, it's okay. part of your hip here at this uh, at the side. Um, and then they take that and then there's a process where you, again, you spin it down and you actually develop both PRP and bone marrow aspirate at the same time. And then there's another technique that uses um, adipose cells, so fat cells, to get stem cells. Um, I'm not as familiar with that technique. Um, and um, so those are two different ways that you can get stem cells. And here in the U US, there are certain regulations on how you can use these techniques and um, whether or not they need to be, um, that how the FDA rules what is considered acceptable to be used and what's mm -hmm. considered like a, um, I'm forgetting the term that they use, but um, if you culture it with before you use it, you're not allowed to do that here in the States. Oh, okay. There are different rules okay. in different countries. Um, so some of the most interesting research is done on stem cells that are cultured outside of the body for anywhere from one week to three weeks and then re-injected. There's a couple interesting studies that have been done out of Spain. And, mm -hmm. um, and those are the ones that seem to show that the stem cells can maybe help regrow some cartilage or maybe help um, uh, regrow some of the meniscus, but we're not allowed to do that here in the States. Okay. So um, here in the States, it's just PRP or same day bone marrow or um, fat um, adipose cell stem cell. Okay. We had a, an earlier episode of Future of Health where we talked about cosmetic surgery and we talked a little bit about medical tourism. But I noticed when I was doing research on this topic that medical tourism does also include stem cell because you can do things differently. Mm -hmm. Do you see a lot of athletes going outside of the U.S. specifically for that? So personally, no. Okay. Oh, personally, no. Um, but I have heard stories of that. Mm -hmm. And the reason for those athletes going out of the country for those procedures is because they can have that different cell manipulation done that you can't have done here. Interesting. Well, I think if you follow sports, I know I follow sports, I'm sure you follow sports, you hear a lot of athletes talking about stem cell treatments, um, which I assume is because of the pressure to get back so quickly, Correct. right? And because surgery is so complicated and takes so much longer. Um, I, I actually was researching and I saw a lot of athletes that I've had the pleasure of working with in my career, like Ronaldo, Steph Curry, Kobe Bryant, have all done it. Mm -hmm. um, and so we actually reached out to Terrell Owens and asked him, because I know he's done it quite a few times, and he said that he's been doing it since 2011. He acted like I was a little crazy that I was just asking him about it now. But he said that he actually, he did it for an ACL injury and he felt positive effects in less than a week. Is that typical? I don't know if I can really speak to the ACL. I'm not very familiar with using neither PRP nor um, like bone marrow derived stem cells for ACL injuries. Um, typically when we, when I have been doing regenerative medicine techniques with patients, it's usually longer than a week that okay. people are feeling better. Well, he might have been but exaggerating just a little. I mean, I been. don't know. Could have been, but you know, <laughs> it's, it's always different and it kind of depends on what the underlying yeah. injury was. and. You know, and if he, he had gone abroad for it, mm -hmm. who knows? Maybe, yeah. maybe it was. 
Interesting. Well, what I did also notice is that you, I saw athletes from across the various sports, very big names, very, very, you know, prominent sports. Mm -hmm. Are there any sports or types of injuries that you're seeing from specific sports that are more conducive to this type of treatment? So the, I'd say that, I don't necessarily know if it's related just to sports, but I'd say that the treatments, the injuries and, um, that I see that tend to respond very well to um, these, these types of treatments are problems of the lateral elbow, so lateral epicondylitis. Um, um, it's actually one of the few indications where some insurances will actually pay for um, PRP. So that's one of the areas where we know it works quite well. I see it an awful lot for um, folks who have knee pain where they either have um, some mild arthritis or they've had a, um, a meniscal tear and they're really not so excited about the idea of surgery because um, we know that removing part of the meniscus, while it can make your pain go away pretty quickly, does really predispose you to accelerated um, development of arthritis down the line and further meniscal tears. And so we found that um, PRP in the knee works quite well. And those are actually the patients where um, they're actually feeling better much or very, fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a couple of days to a week, most of them are saying, yeah, I felt pretty good. Um, so those are, those are probably the two biggest indications that I see it for. Interesting. You mentioned insurance. Mm -hmm. Is this an area where it's mostly elective or quote unquote elective for people or are insurance companies covering some of it? Uh, insurance companies are not really covering any of it. Do you think that's going to change? Do you see I that I really hope change? it does. Uh, <laughs> I think it should change. Um, you know, one of the arguments that I hear a lot about why it's not getting covered is that the, the data is really inconclusive, that some studies show that it's positive, that some studies, studies show that it's negative. And, you know, my take on this is that if you look across the really well-done meta-analyses, in general, they all show that there is a positive trend, right? Um, take a step back, a meta-analysis being where they, uh, somebody has done a study where they just go look at all the other studies that have been done mm -hmm. to try and aggregate the data and get as, uh, it's kind of like big data for, you know, You saw us, my confused right? look, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the, um, so those meta-analysis have really shown that there's a positive trend, right? And, um, the problem is that the, the, the things that insurances cover all the time, so lots of different types of surgeries, if you look at the metadata on, or the meta-analyses of those, the data is all over the place. Like it's not a slam dunk that it's going to be beneficial, mm -hmm. but people have been paying for it for a long time and they're going to continue to do it. And I think actually a great example is you know steroid injections. Mm -hmm. We do steroid injections all the time. If you actually look at the data, um, there is a fair amount of evidence that if you compare a steroid injection to a um, like salt water, normal saline injection, that both people have the same improvement. Really? So there are, you know, there are a couple things that we know steroids will like truly help a lot, such as um, something called calcific tendonitis, which is where you've got extra calcium that's going to growing in one of your tendons. Um, we know that steroids really help that. And um, otherwise, steroids, we think they help. We think they exert a beneficial effect and people will feel better. But 
um, there's a chance that if you were just to inject some salt water that you might get the same outcome. But we always get steroids paid for. <laughs> so that's good to come back to the point, right? You know, there's a lot of stuff we do in medicine that the data, data is really inconclusive. Um, so I would say, I would argue that the data is um, trending in a positive direction for PRP. It's a very, you know, from a healthcare perspective, it's a very cheap intervention compared mm -hmm. to surgeries. And it has the really great chance of being successful. So I think it should probably be covered. Wonderful. Have you noticed that the baby boomer generation has created a bigger need for this type of treatment? I, I think with diabetes and long-term obesity, and I know my dad actually did um, regenerative medicine when they were trying to save an amputation <laughs> for him. Uh, unfortunately, didn't work, although I think maybe would have worked if he'd had, had it done sooner, but is that something that you're seeing more from an older demographic? Yeah, there are a lot more patients um, in the baby boomer generation who are coming in with um, needing treatments of different kinds. And I think it's not even necessarily part of like chronic disease. I think a big part of it is you've just got what we're kind of calling now the aging athlete. So people who have been really active throughout their life and they want to continue that. And so that has created like a whole new almost specialty within sports medicine of, um, you know, sports doctors caring for these aging athletes. And regenerative medicine is a great way to help keep those people really active. Are there a group of people who are not a good fit for regenerative medicine? That is a good question. And there's no kind of across the board contraindication. Um, you know, most, it's always done on a case by case basis. Most of the time it's gonna be based on you know, if there's localized infection or there's bad skin problems overlying it, those might be reasons for, con or those might be contraindications. But in general, there's not like a blanket statement of, you know, these people would not be good candidates. With the exception of if somebody's got metastatic, like, cancer, so diffusely spread cancer, that's probably someone that you're not going to want to do that sure. on. Somebody's got a blood cancer because you don't want to spread that. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk to Dr. Cahill a little bit more about some regenerative medicine and maybe what's coming down the line for the future trends in sports medicine. We'll be right back. Just a moment Hurry up, hurry up 
still remember when things were broken but put together the cracks will close in hurry up hurry up Future of Health, and today we are talking about sports medicine. We were talking a little bit about who's right for the for this type of medicine, maybe who's not right for it. I'm going to go ahead and take it off a personal level. I started running a year ago. My knee is killing me all the time now. How does somebody get to you? How would somebody like me get to you? Would I go to my own doctor first? Would I get a diagnosis? Would I need an ultrasound? How do I get to you to even talk about this option? That is a great question. It varies a little bit based on the um, kind of the health system that you're in. Um, but generally speaking, um, you can either see your primary care doc um, who can kind of evaluate and see, you know, does this seem like it's a, an overuse injury? Does this seem like it's something that might benefit from physical therapy? Or kind of can send you along the line. Um, I see a lot of pa patients who are actually just self-referred to, to see me. Um, and, um, you know, I do, there's always a full exam I'm kind of seeing is there are there biomechanical kind of things that are going on? Are there things that we can do with your shoe wear? Are there things that we can do with gait? Um, depending on what your exam shows, we may consider doing an ultrasound to look, one, to see if there's any fluid in the knee or see if there's any ligament injury. And then we can also see kind of a surrogate view of whether or not there might be some meniscal injury as well. Ultrasound's not a great way of seeing the meniscus. Um, for an ultrasound to work very well, you need to be able to see, the sound waves have to be able to penetrate. Mm -hmm. You can't penetrate bone very well. Um, so we can only see the outer portion of the meniscus, but it can often give us a really good idea of what's going on with the rest of the meniscus. So, so when is your next available opening? <laughs> kidding. Two weeks. <laughs> Two weeks, he's like, okay, make your appointment, find us online. Okay, well let's talk a little bit about um, what's trending in sports medicine. What are the new things that people should be on the look for, we should be researching, or what do you think's coming that we've never even heard of? Those are great questions. I think there are two things that I am pretty excited about in sports medicine. Um, the first is 
the advancing technology and quality of our diagnostic ultrasound. There's an awful lot of what, an awful lot of what I do is based on trying to kind of pinpoint a diagnosis. And with the increasing um, quality of ultrasounds, the changing technology behind ultrasound, no longer re being reliant on these super huge machines and kind of bringing them down to smaller, more portable um, devices that we can bring to the sideline or we can bring to you know, an underserved clinic. Um, that technology is allowing us to bring sports medicine out of where it has been and try and kind of increase uh, our diagnostic specificity, uh, the procedures that we can do. And so that's a really exciting area of sports medicine right now. The other big exciting por portion of sports medicine is PRP and regenerative medicine and stem cell therapies and really honing in on what are, what are the, the diagnoses that it's the best for. Are there specific dosing patterns or dosing regimens that are better than others? Are there better times to treat an injury than others? And are there different ways of preparation that are better than, better than others that improve, um, that improve the outcomes? And those are all questions that um, there are no answers to currently. And I think as those questions get answered, how we direct patients towards appropriate therapies will get more specific and people will eventually be having better, quicker outcomes. Are there clinical trials for these kind of treatments? There are currently an awful lot of basic, a lot of basic science research being done to try and really elucidate, you know, what is the specific, what are the specific cellular changes that are happening in each um, pathology that we're treating with PRP. Um, and so there's an awful lot of that going on. There are some clinical trials that are kind of, you know, getting up and running to try and see um, um, how effective and what is the best um, use of PRP right now. A lot of these tend to be combining PRP with different surgical techniques to kind of improve outcomes. Um, but um, so there are a bunch, I'm probably not the best resource on all the different trials that are going on, but <laughs> I do know that they are happening. So you don't actually manage every single thing that's going on out there. You actually have a life. Okay, I, good to know. I don't actually do any uh, clinical research currently myself. So. Oh, interesting, okay. Well, I know you mentioned elbow and knee kind of a, as a places that you treat often. Are there limits to what or where in the body that you can actually perform regenerative medicine procedures? Generally speaking, if we can get a needle to it, we can try. Love um, yeah, <laughs> um, there. Caveat to that: um, I personally don't do anything around the spine. Um, I know that there are providers in town who are doing um, spinal procedures. One of my colleagues has been doing some lumbar-based spinal procedures, um, but um, that—that's kind of the big caveat there. I'd say the things that we treat the most, are that I treat most often for with PRP, are um, the knee, so intraarticular knee problems, intraarticular hip problems, so inside the hip joint itself, um, around the um, tendons of the elbow, um, the tendons around the shoulder, mm -hmm. and then um, another big area would be the um, tendons of the lateral hip. Okay. So those would probably be the biggest locations. 
So do you see a lot, do you see the work you're doing then reducing the need for hip replacement surgery? I don't know if it's really reducing the need. Um, it is changing, it's helping patients get as much life out of their own mm -hmm. hips as possible. Mm -hmm. So, and I think, you know, you asked a little bit earlier about, you know, aging generation with, you know, still being really active. And I think what we're, one of the things we're seeing with kind of a more active, more extremely active group um, in kind of these younger, in younger generations is that people are having some degenerative problems sooner mm -hmm. than they were in the past. Yeah. And, you know, hip replacement technology has improved a lot, but there's still a limited lifespan. And so when you're having patients in their, you know, 30s, 40s, maybe in their 50s, like, you know, 30s and 40s are definitely early for replacements. 50s is pretty early still. Yeah. And so anything you can do to get um, kind of improved pain, um, reduced pain quality of life um, for a couple of years while you kind of get to a later age, um, those are beneficial interventions. And so we're finding that the PRP can kind of help with that. It makes sense, yeah. We're, we're literally wearing our bodies out earlier is what bit, we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> you also, I think you talked about elbows, knees, hips. I feel like that's every part of my body that hurts. Yeah. Can people do treatments on more than one part of the body at a time, or do you try to keep them contained and see what's working? You can do them on multiple body parts at the same time. Typically, when you, um, with a, the PRP procedure, you get more than what would be needed for just a single joint or a single um, intervention. Mm -hmm. So I will often inject two knees at the same time, oh, okay. um, sometimes two hips at the same time. A lot of times, people have arthritis that comes in pairs. Um, and if you're going to be doing the procedure, may as well treat them both. Okay, well then that brings up a good question. Is there pain involved? I mean, if you're going to do both knees at the same time, is this like I, I leave the office and there's no pain at all? Or is this like I went in and I'm going to be pain, like I need to lay down for a couple of days? Um, there is some discomfort afterwards. So if you've ever had a joint injection, the procedure is generally the same. You get a blood draw like you're in the lab, and then you do a joint injection just like you've, if you've ever had a joint injection before. So we numb, numb the needle tract up, and then we inject the PRP. So it doesn't take very long. It's gonna, um, for us, it's an hour-long visit, um, and you spend most of the time waiting. Fact, and is that while um, you're getting the cells? Right, so you come in, you get your blood drawn, okay. we, do the we spin the cells down. It takes about 15 minutes to do that. Okay. Kind of twiddle your thumbs, read a book, you know, <laughs> whatever, however you're gonna spend, or play on your phone, I guess. Sure, sure. Um, and then we do the injection. Okay. And which takes anywhere from about five to ten minutes, depending. And um, so then um, some people will have those platelets get activated kind of almost right away. And so some people will have a pretty strong reaction mm -hmm. in the immediate uh, period after that. Some people, it doesn't really bother them very much. And this seems to be a little bit dependent on the joint. People okay. who get in injections in their knees tend to do awesome. I've had a lot of people say, you know, you know, 12 hours later, I was feeling like it was okay, you know? Whereas folks who have done it around their elbow, a couple folks have been like, oh, it was killing me for two weeks. So mm -hmm. it's just okay. it's a little bit dependent on where you're doing, um, doing the procedure. Um, and if it's a confined space or if you've got like a big joint with lots of room. Um, and then the, usually it's kind of 12 to 72 hours of increased achiness. It, tend to give people um, some uh, tramadol, so kind of a pain medicine okay. for just about five to 10 tablets, mostly to help with sleep in those first couple days. 
And a big reason for that is you're not allowed to take any anti-inflammatories oh, in the two okay. weeks prior and the one week after. Wow. And the reason for this is um, all those anti-inflammatories inactivate platelets. It's kind of how they work. Um, and so we need the platelets to be active. So um, in order to give you the best chance of success with these procedures, you should not take any anti-inflammatories. That makes and sense so that when would you be, say it that way. <laughs> that would be Aleve, ibuprofen, meloxicam, or some of the other kind of more natural supplements, so like curcumin, turmeric. Sure, sure. Um, you know, generally speaking, if it says on it anti-inflammatory, I generally recommend to not take that. It's a no-no. Okay, awesome. Well, I want to come back to this when we come back from our break, but we are going to take just a quick pause, um, and we will be right back talking about sports medicine.
back with Future of Health today. We are still talking with Dr. Cahill about sports medicine, regenerative medicine. Right before the break, you were talking a little bit about the length of recovery and, and what's, you know, what that looks like. Tell me two things. Tell me a little bit about the overall journey. So from the time I see you, I get my treatment, how long does it last? Do I have to come back? And then also, does your overall health, your overall fitness level, does that equate to how long it lasts or how long it takes, that sort of thing? Those are great questions. So yeah, so walking through what uh, the process would look like. So you would be off your anti-inflammatories for two weeks prior to coming in. You'd come in, you'd have the injection done. You might have a little bit of increased pain for anywhere from you know 12 hours to a week. And then usually by about two weeks, you're gonna back at your baseline. Sometimes you're back at baseline much sooner than that. And then it's two in that um, two weeks to six weeks where people are maybe maybe improving, maybe not. And then it's at six weeks you're really starting to see improvement. And that really starts to build and can continue building for a full three months. Um, how long does it last for? It's very dependent on what you're treating and what you're treating. So if you have a, um, so for example, if you have a proximal tear or a tear of the, um, the proximal portion of one of the ligaments in your elbow called the UCL, and you treat it with PRP, and it heals, then you're healed. You don't have to do it again, oh, right? Okay. If you do it for, you know, if it gets done for a muscle tear and it helps with the healing, then you don't have to do it again. If you're doing it for more of a degenerative process, so if you're doing it for arthritis in the knee, if you're doing it for um, arthritis in the hip, um, how long it lasts is quite variable. Most of the literature seems to seems to suggest, and my experience also suggests, that people are having benefit for benefit for a year or more. Oh wow! Right. Okay. Um, and another question that I get asked a lot is, well, will I need to do another one? Mm -hmm. And again, that's a very case by case um, answer. The if you look across all the clinics that are doing PRP. Um, there's a lot of different protocols. Some people say up front you need three injections. Some clinics say you need two. We um, and just about all the providers in our clinic who use do regenerative medicine say it's kind of a one-time procedure mm -hmm. unless you get good response but not great response, right? So say we do it for knee arthritis and meniscal injury and you get 50 to 6 50 to 60% response. And that persists for you know eight nine months, mm -hmm. and you're like, well, I feel great, but I'm just not quite there. It might be reasonable to try it again. Um, there have been a couple cases where I've done it, um, done PRP for um, a gentleman who was having some quad uh, quad tendon pain after a knee replacement, and he only had a good response for about two to three months. It's definitely not a typical response, but for him, that was what happened. And he's, that's somebody that I'm not really going to recommend that we, you know, try it again. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a little bit variable. Um, I, you know, I am very sensitive to the fact that it's not a free procedure and it's not covered right. by insurance. So um, I'm really um, trying to choose a procedure that's got the best chance of giving a patient success. Absolutely. So. And is the recovery time or the, the ability for it to last longer, is that based on your overall health and fitness? Good question. And I don't know. Um, I have seen patients who are in fantastic shape, have good response. I've had 
seen some patients in fantastic shape have mediocre response. So, um, so I, I think the jury's out on that one. All right. We'll, ask, we'll ask you again in a year. It's probably more related to the, the underlying kind of tissue pathology is rather than the overall health. Makes sense. Well, since we still have you, let's take some questions from social. Um, we'll start with Ben from Twitter, and he asks, does regenerative medicine mean less invasive or shorter recovery or both? A little bit of both. Typically, it is um, less invasive, um, specifically for PRP. As we mentioned, it's really just two needle pokes um, and no scalpels on our needles. So um, the recovery from the procedure itself is really minimal, and really the recovery is just waiting for your body to kind of do the healing process. I'm sorry, I forgot the second part of that question. Nope, you actually you nailed it. Oh, perfect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, well, then we'll take another question. Um, this one comes via Twitter from Jennifer, and she says, do more traditional orthopedic doctors have a hard time getting on board with your type of treatment? That is a great question. I think you're starting to see a change in attitudes. The, it used to be that um, most of the time when I had a patient who I was seen an orthopedist and mentioned PRP, they would kind of poo-poo it as, you know, that's not going to work. There's nothing behind that. And now we're starting to actually see a lot more of the orthopedists who are kind of partner partnering with um, sports docs who are trying to kind of find alternative ways to treat patients and, you know, creating research projects and kind of clinical trials to try and utilize these regenerative medicine techniques. So I really think the tide is starting to shift that um, it is becoming more common for an orthopedic surgeon to um, acknowledge the potential benefit in PRP and other regenerative medicine techniques. So they may be sending them your way eventually. Are you sending them back the other way if, if, if your options aren't the right fit for somebody? Oh, all the time. All the time. Yeah, okay. Um, well, we'll take this question from Facebook. It comes from Connie, and she said, I've read a few articles where they say that regenerative medicine is not based in science. How do you respond to that? Dang, Connie, you went right in there, didn't you? I, I would say it is definitely based in science. Um, there are so many studies out there looking at the basic science of PRP, the basic science of um, stem cell therapies, the, all the signaling cascades that happen. I was you know, just brushing up on a little bit of it in the last couple of days, and it just goes into a little bit of letter goop of like all the different um, pathways that are activated and um, the cell signaling pathways. So there's an awful lot of research on kind of the basic science and really trying to hone in on like what exactly is happening and what exactly is going to be the most, um, you know, what is the pathology that it's going to be best suited for. So if we could really like, as we mentioned before, if you could really mesh those two together, you'd be much better able to say like, you, you are definitely going to improve with this. Right. And well, unfortunately, even though yours looks like it's going to improve on the surface, when you look at it deeper, maybe it might not improve quite as well. So I'd say there's an awful lot of research that's happening out there. I would say there, you know, as I just alluded to, there's still a lot that's unknown. Um, we know that PRP works. We know that in the lab it works really well. But there's still an awful lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of gaps in our knowledge. So, um, so there's a lot more to learn and a lot more research to be done. We are practicing medicine after all, right? Exactly.
I actually would have gone the other way with that. I think when I think about what you're talking about, and I'm picturing like blood platelets in a centrifuge, I would think it's very scientific. It's very matrix-ish. So, yeah. it's kind of cool. It's a very cool field that you're in. Yeah. Um, I, let's take one more question then, and this one comes from Twitter. Ashley asks, does the national opioid epidemic have an impact on your field of practice? Are people looking into regenerative medicine more to avoid long-term pain pill usage? It's a good question. Um, obviously, the opioid um, epidemic and chronic pain in general is a really challenging problem to deal with. And um, I think that regenerative medicine does have a role um, in trying to help some of these chronic problems that are not amenable to surgery. So. Um, certain knee issues and certain hip issues and you know certain back issues, regenerative medicine can certainly play a role. Great. Well, let's um, come back to our conversation. Tell me a little bit about what is the most fulfilling aspect of the work you do. I think the best part of my job is getting to see someone get back to their activity, right? So, um, and that can be anything, whether that's playing with kids, it's playing their sport, it's being able to work the job that they really enjoy doing. Um, so I think you know one of the things we didn't really talk about at the very beginning is that you know we're called sports medicine physicians, but it's kind of a misnomer because we don't just see athletes. Mm -hmm. I think one of the you know if you were to ask me what what's a super surprising thing about sports medicine, I'd say that actually the vast majority of my patients aren't injured playing sports, right? Like they are injured via life, they're injured because they're the working athlete, you know, they're, they're just, everybody uses their body, which puts you at risk for hurt, getting hurt. And so getting people back to the life that they want to live, like that's really the best part. Is that Nike? Everybody is an athlete, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. Is there one particular case or patient that stands out the most to you in the work you've done? I think that um, in the context of the discussion that we're having, there is one uh, gentleman that comes to mind. He was a retired cop. He was in his you know, 60s or 70s, loved to play basketball, and happened to have a tear of his medial meniscus. And initially saw a surgeon who told him he needed to get some surgery. Um, and he was like, I don't really know. I don't, I don't think I want to do that. So he came to see me, um, really interested in PRP. Um, and so we did PRP for him and saw him, you know, I typically see people at two weeks and six weeks and then maybe a little bit later after that if, if necessary. Um, and um, he kept telling me that he like, you know, I'm only like five or 10% better. I'm only five or 10% better. But I wasn't asking him like what he was doing. And he was playing basketball for two hours every day. Oh and he would, the reason why he felt like he wasn't um, that much better was because he felt like he just he wasn't quite as quick as he was before. So, you know, I think, you know, I think that's kind of like case in point. Like he couldn't run, he couldn't dribble, he couldn't cut. And he was playing basketball for two hours, like almost every day, about six weeks after we did his PRP. So that guy, like that, that gentleman definitely sticks out in my mind. Who has time to play two hours of basketball a day if that's it's not your career? The retired life. Oh, there we go. Okay, well, that's good. I would like to retire soon. Um, what advice would you have for children or parents or coaches to prevent overuse injuries and burnout? Those are uh, big loaded questions. Yes, they are. Um, <laughs> so I think the, um, you know, the, the way to prevent burnout, I think, is, you know, keep it fun um, and build in time for unstructured play and um, make sure there's downtime. So we know that um, 
for, for kids and adolescents, there should really be at least two to three months off from a sport, um, from all organized sport throughout the year. It doesn't have to be in one big chunk, but you know, taken throughout the year, there should be significant downtime. That helps prevent burnout. Um, it helps keep it fun. Um, and it also helps reduce overuse injuries. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those are kind of the three principles of kind of keeping it fun for everybody. Well, let's get to the most pressing question I have for you. I know you're an athlete. Are you a sports fan? I enjoy sports. <laughs> I'm actually a very poor sports watcher. Okay. I do follow my, uh, I do follow soccer. I, okay. I really like the Sounders and go to all the Sounders games. Um, and I'll follow, you know, the games online. Um, and I, um, I'm actually a big cyclist as well, and so okay. I'm always checking what's going on in kind of the, um, the European racing and um, domestic racing as well. But I, uh, I've never really just, I'm not like, you're not gonna see me like dressed, dressed to the nines like no all the time, paint. no face paint. <laughs> um, but I do enjoy like following. But maybe the bib, you might wear the cycling bib of your favorite. Race team? Uh, not so much. <laughs> I will wear the cycling bib while I'm riding, but like Perfect. Not, not just for fun. Oh. Well, Dr. Cahill, I really want to thank you for joining us today, and I want to thank everyone who's listening for those who also sent in their questions. We look forward to future topics with more experts from Providence St. Joseph Health. Make sure to follow us on social media at PSJH on Twitter and on Instagram and under Providence St. Joseph Health on Facebook. If you missed part of the show, remember you can always replay it on Dash Radio and share it with your friends, and we look forward to talking to you again soon.